I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It isn't immigrants that raised interest rates, but volume is volume and it's something that we need to look at. Hi, I'm Saroja Coelho in Toronto. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. Obviously, you need to build homes if you're going to bring in people. We need to make a link between the number of homes built and the number of people we invite as new Canadians. Our question, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming immigrants and housing affordability? International students feel that we're being used as a scapegoat for the housing issues. I want more housing in Nunavut first before they start letting in uh, immigrants to Canada. Us that live in the north, we have to wait 20 years to get a unit. There's lots of room for people in rural Alberta, doctors, nurses, uh, people in, in senior homes. All of those people were short of. Immigration is an essential part of the Canadian experience. People come to Canada hoping to make new and better lives. Newcomers fill much-needed positions in sectors like healthcare, transportation, tech, and construction. Canada has steadily increased the number of new permanent residents in recent years, aiming to reach 500,000 a year by 2025. Some of those will come from the 2.5 million non-permanent residents that are in Canada right now. That includes international students and temporary foreign workers. As newcomers move here, they also need somewhere to live. And finding something that is safe and affordable, that's not a given. The federal government has acknowledged that the number of non-permanent residents is putting a strain on housing. But do we have the full picture here? Immigration and housing are really complex topics, and we want to be sure that we are working with all of the facts, especially since the government says there may be changes coming to Canada's immigration policy. Our question, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? I'm Saroja Coelho in Toronto from CBC Radio. This is Checkup, the podcast, cross-country checkups live broadcast from January 21st, 2024. For the folks who are watching on CBC News Network or online, we are live, and that means that you can join us in this conversation today. You can call us right now because we are on air. This is a really complicated topic. It gets covered from many different areas of expertise. We're going to look at housing, at immigration, and at the economic issues at the heart of this. I want to introduce you right now to two experts who will be with us throughout the show to share their insights as we take your calls. Rupa Banerjee is the Canadian Research Chair in the Economic Inclusion of Immigrants. She's also an Associate Professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Randall Bartlett is the Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. Hello to both of you. 
Hello. Hi, Saroja. Hi there. Randall, according to Statistics Canada, the country is experiencing high record population growth, the vast majority of that being driven by international migration. We're going to pull some of that apart. But what is the connection between population growth that we're seeing right now and housing prices? Well, the connection between um, population growth and housing prices just generally is, uh, is one of demand. So as we see our population increase, you know, whether it's driven by immigration or just natural births, uh, we see that uh, ultimately that puts um, increases demand for housing and, and puts uh, puts upward pressure on uh, on home prices as a consequence. And typically that induces you know additional supply. And so uh, that's uh, that's, you know, generally sort of how we think about what the primary drivers are when we're uh, we're doing our uh, economic analysis and forecasting around this sort of thing. Rupa, I'm going to come to you next. Immigration Minister Mark Miller says that the government is considering reining in the number of non-permanent residents coming to Canada. And according to a report that you might have seen in the Toronto Star, part of that plan could involve limiting the number of study permits that are divided out to each of the provinces, so bringing those numbers down. CBC hasn't confirmed that report, but it's consistent with what the ministers have told us in the past. So if I come to you for your view, do these programs need to be examined? Absolutely. I think um, they're, you know, it's it's past due to actually take a look um, at the temporary immigration system more broadly, uh, with uh, international students being one component of the temporary migration system, the others being um, temporary foreign workers who are working in a range of sectors throughout the economy. Um, I think that uh, unlike Because unlike our permanent immigration system, which has numbers and caps and goals, um, the temporary immigration system really has no caps at all. And really, it's only at the end of the year when we find out how many were admitted through um, study permits and through work permits. So it is absolutely past due to actually look at this system overall. But I am concerned with just looking at it in terms of numbers and limiting study permits um, very broadly as a blanket statement. I think there needs to be a lot more care given to um, which institutions are allotted study permits, what kind of programs are approved, uh, educational programs are approved in the first place. Uh, So there's a lot of um, in-depth analysis that actually needs to be done to make sure that the right types of international students are getting study permits uh, to come to Canada and that the right types of international of temporary foreign workers are actually getting a work permit. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot more um, analysis that needs to go into this than simply placing caps or limiting numbers. What do you mean when you say right types? Right. So our permanent immigration system, uh, the economic component of our immigration system, which about, you know, two thirds, uh, 60 percent and more of our uh, immigrants coming to Canada today are uh, economic immigrants. And so we select them based on what we call human capital attributes, human capital factors through um, express entry. And that's our currently our system for admitting economic immigrants. And that's really, you know, well calibrated and uh, takes into account a range of different factors like education and uh, the field of uh, uh, expertise a person brings and their age and whether they have contacts in Canada, a whole range of factors. Temporary migration, on the other hand, takes into account none of those kinds of things. Uh, It's really a matter of uh, whether uh, uh, study permits are 
uh, allotted and admitted, given to uh, particular institutions. And so whether uh, a student is actually going to be uh, able to integrate into society, uh, whether the, the field that they're going into is going to be in high demand, these things are not really considered when considering whether a study permit should be admitted. Similarly, in terms of temporary foreign workers, it's really based on the employer lobby, whether an employer can, you know, basically, uh, you know, get work permits for a particular uh, temporary foreign worker. And larger and larger proportions of temporary foreign workers in Canada today do not even require um, any sort of labor market impact assessment, right? So they are, okay. they fall within categories where we don't really even know if, uh, you know, there are Canadians able to do the job. So there's a lot of um, analysis, as I said, that mm -hmm. could really be done to make sure that the economic, um, you know, soundness of the temporary migration system is there, just like it is in the permanent system currently. Thank you for that, Rupa. We did invite uh, both Immigration Minister Mark Miller and Housing Minister Sean Fraser to join us today. Both were unavailable because of the Liberal Cabinet's retreat, which starts today. We did ask Minister Miller's office whether the government would consider revising immigration targets. And a spokesperson said, in part, while population growth through immigration increases demand for housing, it also contributes significantly to the supply of labor, including the construction sector, to build homes. It's important to note that a growing number of immigrants who are granted permanent residence are already in Canada as temporary residents and have found accommodation. Then the government goes on to say, quote, they're continuing to work with partners to strike the right balance in determining immigration levels, end quote. So the statement also notes that liberals have signed deals with cities and provinces through the national housing strategy to fast track 100,000 new homes. And that would be over the next three years and also unlocking more than 450,000 homes over the next decade. If you're just tuning in, I'm here live with Canada Research Chair Rupa Banerjee and, ec and economist Randall Bartlett from Desjardins. And our question today is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also go on cbc.ca slash aircheck. As we heard in the introduction, conservative leader Pierre Poliev has been talking about linking immigration levels to the amount of housing available. And earlier this month, he said that his party would, quote, get back to an approach of immigration that inv invites the number of people that we can house, employ, and care for in our health system. Now, Randall, I really want to pull that statement apart. It's a powerful one, um, how we link these things to the availability of services and then setting numbers according to that. If you focus on the housing part of that statement, what do you think of that strategy? Well, it's interesting in that uh, it's it's very challenging, I think, to uh, to do that. When we unpack, and I think uh, Dr. Banerjee did a terrific job of this, uh, who's coming to Canada, whether through the uh, immigra immigration system as permanent residents or as non-permanent residents, uh, most of the folks coming to Canada in the last year uh, have been uh, non-permanent residents, about two-thirds of uh, the, the folks entering Canada, and those are either students or uh, here folks who are here to work on a temporary basis. And I think it's really important uh, to understand why those folks are coming to Canada. Uh, they're 
coming at the request of employers, those who are coming to work here, to address uh, significant labor shortages that we had in the Canadian economy coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so uh, we know now that the job vacancy rate, um, even with all of these people coming to Canada, isn't even quite back at the uh, average it was at before the pandemic. And so there was a lot of labor market need that had to be addressed. And so these folks came to the country on a temporary basis at request of employers to help satisfy that need. If they didn't come, there would have been other uh, negative knock-on effects for the Canadian economy, likely higher inflation in other parts of the economy, and ultimately higher interest rates as a consequence. And so I think when we're thinking about linking it to housing, uh, certainly demand for housing uh, is supportive to housing prices and ultimately does induce supply. So the question then is, what is the right pace of immigration, not just immigration, but also admission of non-permanent residents to ensure that home prices provide that signal to the market that allows folks to uh, uh, to build, it encourages developers to uh, to build more housing, and I think uh, part of that uh, is that that ongoing signal that developers require, but also a focus of public policy on reducing barriers to building and therefore thereby reducing costs, things like getting rid of exclusionary zoning, that sort of thing. And I think the housing accelerated fund is a good step in that direction. But also, builders right now are facing significant constraints in terms of high interest rates and very high input costs into building more housing. And I think there's it's a very complex system and a very complex process. And I think uh, targeting one lever in all of that is going to be extremely challenging. It's easy to say, but it's a lot harder to do. Rupa, I want to come to you for a moment because the Liberals introduced ambitious immigration targets. That was in the fall of 2022. The message at the time was that Canada desperately needed new immigrants to fill key labor market gaps. And Randall's been speaking to some of that. That was particularly in the the, the outcome moments of of COVID-19 emergence from the pandemic. Is Canada's immigration strategy accomplishing that? That's also a very complicated question, right? So, um, of course, you know, we've been hearing about the desperate need uh, for labor and the labor shortages throughout the economy. Uh, But of course, those labor shortages are not uniform throughout the economy. There are sectors that have massive labor needs. And then there are sectors where folks are still, you know, having difficulty finding, uh, matching their skills to the available jobs. So, um, I think that unlike every other immigrant receiving country like Australia um, and uh, certainly the U.S., uh, after the COVID-19 pandemic, Canada just took a very, very different uh, strategy to try and, um, you know, overcome the economic turmoil of the pandemic uh, and really pinned its um, economic hopes on on newcomers, uh, which, you know, in some ways is really bold and, and great, except the fact that it seemed to come without the infrastructure and the investment and the real forethought that's needed to actually increase numbers as quickly and as sort of dramatically as as was done, particularly after we had just been through two or three years of, you know, really an economic um, uh, challenge of, of, uh, of the pandemic and health challenge of the pandemic. So it, at that moment where we were and the world was quite vulnerable um, and going through a lot to increase numbers the way that it was done to me, uh, you know, I think left a re- what really showed a real uh, lack of policy, policy insight and policy forethought. Uh, but much more than the permanent numbers, I think the temporary numbers, the temporary migration numbers are the much bigger concern in my eyes, because Although I'm not a housing expert, mm-hmm. um, what I do know is that temporary residents, they don't buy. Students are not looking to buy houses. They're looking to rent. Right. And so this um, massive increase in numbers also you know, really affected 
the sort of lower side of the housing market, in particular the rental market. So uh, altogether, I think it, it is a complicated question. But indeed, um, you know, although Canada's yeah, Canada's stance was bold, but perhaps without foresight. What I'm really hearing that that I mean, both of you come at this from such different perspectives and different areas of expertise. But I'm hearing that um, support is going to be an issue. Flexibility is an issue here. That there needs to be a lot of thought about how to do this, not not only um, in a way that that supports people who come into the into the country but to also really look that policy decisions are linked to the actual facts that you're holding in your hands. It's a really fascinating topic. I want to turn to um, to some of our callers now. If you're just tuning in, our question on Checkup today is, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? I want to connect now with someone who originally reached out to us on AirCheck. Uh, I'm going to come now to Sanjam Suri. Hello. Uh, hello. Hi there. It's so nice of you to join us today. You're tuning. You're coming to us from Ottawa. Can you tell me a little bit about your story? Yeah. So my motivation here is, you know, again, um, I'm someone who moved here as a 14 year old with my parents. So I've lived through that classic immigrant experience uh, where you move to a new country and you have to start life from scratch alongside my family. Um, so I'm very sensitive to this topic, um, and I think going back to the question, is Canada striking the right balance? Uh, my answer is is no, it's not. Um, and this might sound a bit odd as someone who's immigrated here uh, himself as a teenager, but this is a topic of discussion at dinner table with my family, my social circle, uh, folks who have immigrated, and we can't help but feel that our infrastructure uh, has not kept up with uh, the growth in population. And how do you even plan for infrastructure when we have no idea how many people? It seems like the floodgates are open. Um, I know we have a target for permanent residents, but look, last year was uh, our, we took in around 1.2 million people. It's the fastest annual growth since 1957. So there is no way in the world we can grow our infrastructure to keep up with the demand. And I think that there needs to be an honest discussion on how we can manage this growth. And until we can get our infrastructure needs handy, then we need to take a pause and see whether immigration is really working to the benefit of Canada and Canadians. When we were speaking with you earlier in the week, you actually expressed concern that this could swing Canadian politics in a particular direction um, if we don't get it right. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, like, uh, I think that oftentimes in Canada, we tend to think that, you know, we're, we're cut from a different cloth. I mean, we, we, we've been lucky. We, we have U.S. Uh, as, and we, we share a largest undefended border uh, on the two sides. We're surrounded by oceans. And in the north, we have the Arctic. So we have not had to deal with the sort of uncontrolled immigration slash refugee crisis that you saw in Europe in 2015 uh, when Angela Merkel was there. Uh, And just look at last year uh, in Netherlands, you saw a sharp turn to the right. And that's because uh, there was a consensus that immigration worked for Canada because we could pick and choose. And everyone felt that while immigration is going on, it's not uncontrolled. And I think something has changed. Something has changed in the last couple of years where more and more people, and this includes people who have immigrated, uh, at some point in their lives, feel that immigration is no longer a net positive to the Canadian economy. 
Could I put a, a difficult question to you, Sanjam? And I don't want to put you on the spot, so you can, of course, back up from this question if, if it doesn't feel quite right for you. But some of the, I was in Germany when um, the the large migration happened in 2015, uh, and it, it continued. 20, 2016 was also another big year. And a lot of those people were in, in deep, deep crisis. They were, they were fleeing Syria. They were fleeing war. Um, in the Netherlands, there are a lot of people there who were arriving desperate to have any any tiny piece of the stability that you'll find so richly across Europe. Um, so as we balance, I'm hearing you talk about the economy, and of course, I can understand why that's so important to you, and concerns that if we don't get this moment right, it'll be bad for everybody because there will be a, a, a focus on politics that are not people positive at all. But do you feel um, that, what do you, how do you feel about our responsibility to take care of people in, in a world that is in uncontrolled violence. Is it not our responsibility to look after Canadians first? Uh, is it not our responsibility to make sure that we have shelter for that homeless veteran and homeless encampments that have popped up all across our cities? Uh, I do believe that charity begins at home. And if we have to get the greater focus on immigration, we need to make sure that Canadians are on board. And when Canadians look around, and they see that our infrastructure, I know we are talking about housing right now, but infrastructure is more than housing. When Canadians see uh, that you have people who, for, who, worked in, who served in the Canadian forces and are now in homeless encampments, mm. how, how does that, that cannot bode well for the debate around immigration. And that is my concern. Again, I'm saying that as someone who benefited from immigration, and I still believe that immigration is a net positive. But my concern is that unless we have a, an honest debate on the right level and the right sort of immigration, is you can have elements on the fringe that can hijack this issue and it can turn into something worse than what we are talking about right now. Sanjam, I'm so grateful for you being willing to go into the into the tricky and fragile territory around um, um, rights versus economy and resource uh, resource shortages, resource availability. Thank you so much for for calling in today. We are on cross country checkup today. We are talking about the balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability. Are we striking the right balance, and what's your stake in this? If you would like to answer, we're clearly um, presenting lots of different opinions here around the table. Um, Rupa, I'd, I'd like to come to you for just re really just one minute very quickly, because um, I imagine with some of the work that you do, that you might have a response to some of that feeling about what we need to take care of at home. I, I think I, one of the things I feel most strongly about is to emphasize that um, getting this right and making sure that both our levels and our, you know, um, uh, our resources at home, uh, getting that right, it's not just a benefit to Canadians, uh, meaning, you know, Canadian-born, generation upon generation Canadians. It's also a benefit to immigrant Canadians. So there, you know, there are large numbers of folks, like my people in my own family, who arrived here either decades ago or last week, who are now part of this fabric. And the people who are most vulnerable and at risk, like Sanjam mentioned, you know, uh, folks who are unhoused or, you know, veterans, that also includes newcomers, many, many newcomers who are also facing huge um, challenges in terms of, you know, the cost of living and being able to afford to uh, actually prosper in Canada. And so striking that balance is, is crucial, not just for what we can traditionally think of as Canadians, because that definition no longer holds in Canada.
Thank you for that, Rupa. I want to go to some of the responses we've had on social media, going first to Dolores Beebe, who reached us through Aircheck from Oshawa, Ontario, and writes, I love that we are accepting more immigrants, but there should have been more pre-planning around housing and supportive income. Also needed our immigration support, such as language classes, integration services to assist newcomers. We have another comment. This one is from Giselle Pellan, who writes via text message, Although I welcome new Canadians, I firmly believe that we should bring the numbers of newcomers down to a minimum for three years. Uh, So that means bringing them all the way down over the course of the next three years. We need to ensure that we have enough housing for those of us who are already living and working here in Canada. And we should have an extra housing. We should have extra housing ready for newcomers. So this is a really interesting conversation that we're having because we have um, people in in need. I mean, people come to Canada because they want to change their lives. They're not leaving things behind usually for just the adventure of living in Canada. They are trying to build new and better lives. And the big questions that we have on the table are, what are our responsibilities to them? How do we accommodate? How fast do we go? If you have an opinion, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at 1-888-416-8333. Randall, as we mentioned, the federal government has discussed the possibility of a cap on international students as part of the conversation that we're having. Um, Those students do work here. They spend their money here. What are those potential knock-on economic uh, impacts that we might see if a cap is introduced? And we dug into this for the uh, the province of Ontario back in the fall. And what we found is that um, because of uh, uh, stagnant funding uh, on a per student basis uh, from the provincial government, uh, universities were using or post-secondary institutions, so universities and colleges, were using uh, foreign students in part to help, uh, you know, fill the, the revenue gap that they were experiencing to make sure that they could cover expenses. Uh, they've also been, you know, fallen victim to, to high inflation and that sort of thing as well. And so uh, they really been relying on uh, on foreign students to help really uh, keep the lights on at these institutions. And so that's why I think it's part of a broader conversation uh, that the federal government needs to have with provincial governments as well around funding post-secondary education uh, in Canada. Because I, I do think it's, uh, it is it is inappropriate to uh, be bringing uh, kids into this country to be charging them a significantly higher tuition uh, without making sure that there's sufficient uh, housing uh, to, to support them, uh, but also uh, to make sure there's sufficient housing within their community so it doesn't have adverse effects on the broader community. And so I'm hoping the federal government is having those conversations with uh, the heads, with the leaders in provincial governments to make sure that they're not going to create uh, unintended consequences on that front by potentially closing the door to uh, foreign students coming to Canada. It's so interesting that you bring this up, um, not to get too anecdotal within my own life, but uh, the, the dog park is this great egalitarian place where you get to meet people from all kinds of different backgrounds. And there is a, a building that's quite affordable um, in in my neighborhood, but because people are, um, students particularly, are trying so hard to save every penny that they can, they are sharing two-bedroom apartments with six people, um, which is something that I'd always associated with sort of the New York experience. It was very surprising for me to find that in a, in a big city in, in Canada. So I think that a lot of people are, are living in circumstances that we hadn't really predicted when we, when we thought about uh, having them here in Canada. Um, I want to go to another caller on the line. Uh, Thomas Crenier, uh, you are a renter. You've been trying to to buy. There's only a handful of houses where you are in Edmonton. When you made the move from Calgary, you found that you just couldn't afford anything there. Um, I want to understand what you think about our question today and where, where your stakes are there. 
Hi there. Can you hear me okay? I certainly can. Hello. Excellent. Hello. This is the first time I've done this, so I well, ask welcome. you bear with me on this. <laughs> Thank welcome. you. Um, yeah, I, I live in Edmonton right now, which is honestly a, a fairly depressed urban market comparatively to like Vancouver and Toronto. Um, but I think, uh, and this is like obviously in very over, like a very complex topic, but I think if we're taking a slightly more long-term perspective, I think we need to start looking uh, to ourselves, I think, a little bit and start asking this question. Uh, I guess when I say that, I mean immigration, I think, is a discussion I think we probably should have, but I think it's also a bit of a red herring. Because um, I think the people who are talking about immigration as something that uh, is hyperinflating the housing market, they're the same kind of people who own housing uh, on, a, say, a certain urban block uh, and refuse to allow for high-density uh, housing to go down the street, if that makes sense. So we have this commodification of housing that we've had, and everyone's taking uh, a long game with their house and trying to drive it up as much as possible. But this notion that we're trying to drive up housing prices is contingent upon there being a scarcity of housing. And I think as soon as we stop looking at housing as something that is a commodity and more of a human right, uh, I think we are, are ever going to be in this problem, regardless of whether we're bringing in a, like a certain number of immigrations or immigrants. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And so you were saying that basically we, we need to be looking at what created this situation where we're starting to see this as a resource that we all have to compete over and something that we have to make a lot of profit on as opposed to taking care of making sure that everybody has a roof over their head. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. I think we have a personal responsibility and I think there's a danger to saying, are we letting too many immigrants or new Canadians in? Um, I think there's a danger to that. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there's a threshold in which there's too many people coming in that there's absolutely not enough supply. But I think we're in a reckoning. We're going to see a, a, an increase of, of climate refugees, uh, if nothing else, um, starting to happen over the next couple of decades. And if we didn't have the conversation about whether um, people can own quarter-acre lots in the center of Toronto um, whilst people are trying to build high-density housing uh, nearby and getting pushed out by the community, I think we're always going to have this problem if that makes sense. Thank you so much, Thomas, for your thoughts. No worries. I'm going to go now to another caller on the line. If you're just joining us, the question today on Cross Country Checkup is, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? You can reach us at one 416 833 Three, or you can reach us online, cbc.ca slash aircheck. That's cbc.ca slash aircheck. We're going to go now to a call from Jessica Deneen, who is in Cambridge, Ontario. Uh, Jessica, what do you feel about the topic? We've had so many different perspectives on the table as we look at, uh, at housing availability and, and supporting newcomers. What do you think as you're listening to this conversation? Well... I did almost 12 years at the University of Waterloo, and over that time, I've seen housing become more and more difficult to secure, despite there being so many ads for student housing and single-family homes being converted into student housing. But I also know that the majority of that isn't coming from the University of Waterloo, where they have that first-year housing guarantee. And... I just, I've seen so many international students come in and an increasing number. And at first I thought, well, it can't be international students that are pushing this. There's regulations and controls. 
I dug into the numbers and yeah, the numbers were going up and now we're at a crisis point where like the previous caller has said, there's six people to a room or two or three or even two's a lot. And well, I've put a lot of thought into how to fairly address this. And one thing keeps coming to mind is that we should limit the number of people coming in. But how do you do that fairly? Well, looking at the University of Waterloo, they have that first-year housing guarantee. What if we made it so that the institutions, as part of their international student tuition package, were obligated to provide housing for the students they bring in? Make the universities and colleges have a stake in housing the population that we serve. Thank you so much, Jessica, for your thoughts. We're going to go now to uh, someone who's been writing about this. We're hearing all those different perspectives, and we're going to look at what's being written in Canadian newspapers next. You might have heard the term population trap at some point this week, and it features prominently in a report from the National Bank of Canada that was just this past Monday, and part of the reason we're having this conversation today. Essentially, this means that the living standards in Canada are not increasing because populations are rising too quickly. Our next guest pointed out pointed to that report in his column where he argued that the immigration system is broken. Tony Keller is a columnist for the Globe and Mail and joins me now from Toronto. Tony, hello. Hi there. Hi there. So a lot of people asking today whether Canada is striking that right balance. This is our question today on air check between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability. And reading your column, I would take from what you've written that you would answer no to that question. Can you tell me why? Yeah, you are correct. I would answer no to that question. Um, There has to be a balance struck. And the key thing that we should be looking at is, you know, how do we have an immigration system that uh, provides the maximum benefit to the economy and to Canadians, that runs smoothly, that doesn't uh, diminish the housing market, that has economic benefits on the side. And right now, things are just out of balance. And I'd say on the whole, it's, it's not the numbers it's the speed of the numbers and it's primarily the as as one of your previous experts said the professor from uh, toronto metropolitan university it's primarily the temporary streams the temporary foreign worker stream and the student visa stream both of which have grown at a remarkable pace just over the last few years they were increasing all the way through the early 2000s the mid 2000s but they've just exploded since about um, 2019 and just that speed of entry into Canada uh, of that large number of people in that short a period of time is such that it is having a big effect on the housing market and it's actually having a big effect on the economy in the sense that we have seen Uh, the economy growing more slowly than the population over the last six quarters, which is exactly what we do not want to see. We want to see the pie getting bigger at a faster pace than the population. What we've actually been seeing is the pie growing more slowly than the population, which effectively means that every slice of the pie is getting smaller. And that is not at all what we want. And that is going to have uh, not just negative implications for the economy, it's also going to make people start to question um, the immigration consensus that Canada has had for a very, very long time. 
if I look at that piece of the, that pie chart with you, and we and we look at the number of people, and we think about how many resources we need to separate, including the important question of housing, how would you suggest the federal government find a better balance between welcoming newcomers and keeping housing at some level of affordability? What would you say is the solution there? Yeah, and so this is bigger than housing. Housing is a piece of it. I'd say the thing the government has to focus on and hasn't focused on at all is saying, okay, look, the, system, the, the purpose of economic immigration, which is the biggest part of our immigration system, is to benefit Canada. It's to bring to Canada people with high skills and high educations. And in fact, ideally, on average, they should be people who have higher skills and higher education levels than the average Canadian worker, such that they help us raise gross domestic, gross domestic product uh, per person. They, in effect, bring a lot to the table. And what we have right now is a system that isn't doing that. It is not really on the temporary foreign worker side and on the student visa side, it's not controlling at all for quality. It's just volume, volume, volume. Um, it's anybody who's willing to pay tuition at any kind of university or college or private college. And on the temporary foreign worker side, it's companies being able to bring in effectively hundreds of thousands of people to work very, very low wage jobs, which is having two really big impacts. One, it's depressing wages at the bottom of the market. So it's actually harming the lowest income Canadians. Two, it's pushing up rent because all these people have to pay rent, especially rent, not just housing prices, rent. And that's also the bottom to middle of the market that's being affected. So uh, there's some very negative consequences from the fact that we're not thinking this through. We're, we're treating it as if you're either pro-immigration or anti-immigration and the government has just been blindly pro rather than thinking through, okay, how do we get the most benefit out of this system so that everyone wins? Immigrants win, Canadians win, everybody ends up better off and nobody's unhappy about it. I want to, something that you brought up is, has come up a couple of times in this conversation about there being no checks. I'm hearing this repeat and repeat that yep. there, there's not enough, look, there's there's such scrutiny for, for permanent residents that there's a list of, there's an entire sort of list of merits and, and things you need to accomplish, your age, your marital status, everything. When you say and when others say or, or imply that there are no checks, what does that actually mean and, and what would getting it right look like? Well, effectively, you and I could go and set up an educational institution called the Cross Country Checkup School of Education, and we sounds could like offer, a fine institution. <laughs> and we could offer credentials, and the government would give us visas to bring in as many foreign students as we wanted to accept at whatever tuition rate right. we wanted to charge, no matter what we were teaching. That is kind of what's happened to our education system. So people think when they hear foreign students, they think, oh, there's somebody at the University of Waterloo or the University of British Columbia, they're doing a master's degree in engineering, that's great for Canada. And that is great for Canada. The problem is a large part of the education intake isn't that at all. It's just a pretext to go work at a low wage job and try to get into the permanent residence uh, stream. At the same time, on the temporary foreign worker side, Ideally, temporary foreign workers should be very high skill people earning high wages who are coming for a job where we have shortages. Like one of the things I talked about in my column is if Canada had hired 10,000 foreign doctors last year, nobody would be saying that's that's a bad thing. Instead, what we've done is we've we've allowed businesses to hire hundreds of thousands of people doing minimum wage work. And quite honestly, there's there's no shortage of people to do minimum wage work in Canada. What would happen would be those wages would get pushed up because of the fact that there'd be pressure on employers 
um, to try to reach out and get people to, to work those jobs. And there'd also be pressure on employers to invest in labor-saving technology, uh, plant and equipment, which is what raises the productivity of the economy. So I, I really think over the last few years, we've created a system that just gets it all backwards. I am live with Tony Keller, and he is a columnist with The Globe and Mail. He is helping us out with our question today, which is, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? If you have an opinion as you're listening to this conversation unfold, 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Tony, if I can come back to you for a moment, we've been talking about recent polling, and you've also been speaking about some of the knock-on effects, the impact that could happen. Um, We are seeing polling that says that Canadians are increasingly feeling that the number of immigrants entering the country is too high. We're also hearing that reflected in this conversation. Even people who are saying they welcome immigration are are speaking about the velocity that you've been speaking to, that the the speed and the unchecked nature of it is making people uh, incredibly nervous. What what is your concern as, as that um, as people express worries about immigration, as people start to express a wish to to reduce numbers or slow it down, uh, does that concern you at all? Yes. Uh, so there are two concerns I have. One is the economic concern, which we just talked about. But the second is the sort of political social concern. In every European country and in the United States, there's a really strong and growing polarization between left and right on immigration. And you have people on the radical left who think there should be no borders, and you have people on the radical right who think there should be no immigration. And Canada has lived in a very happy middle place in between those two, where we have had an immigration consensus uh, all the way up to the Trudeau government. Liberals and conservatives and NDP all basically had the same immigration policy. I mean, government after government, we were we had numbers that everybody agreed on. There was no argument about it. There's no anti-immigration party. Um, what's happening is because the Trudeau government, I, I feel, has so opened up the system, and mostly not through the regular immigration system, but through the temporary immigration system. They've so opened things up that they are provoking, I fear, a backlash. And this is going to enter into Canadian politics. And you may have sort of radical pro-immigration and radical anti-immigration debates. And that's not what what I would hope we should be having. And that's not what we've had for decades. We've had a really great pro-immigration consensus where the government says we're in favor of immigration and let's run it in a way that benefits the Canadian economy. And Canadians say, great, there's nothing to argue about. There's nothing to debate. We're removing immigration from from politics, in effect. This has been a pretty good system we've had, and I, I fear it has been wrecked, and I'm worried that uh, it, it, it can't be fixed. The government has a very short time to fix this. If I look at the mechanism there, I, I have a question about, we're, we're describing a situation, and I'd like to get a sense of how we got here, um, because the, the, the government policy will be an answer to a demand, um, and, from, and, and at some point there must have been um, we've been hearing from from uh, some of our guests today that uh, the need for jobs, the labor shortages, post-COVID recovery has required big numbers. Where is the lobbying coming from? Because those those policies oh. don't materialize from nowhere. Yep. So that's a great question. Uh, first of all, it's clear business has constantly been pushing and saying, we need labor, we need labor, we need labor, particularly at the bottom end of the market. There's a labor shortage. And the government has 
sort of listened to that. Provincial governments and, and the federal government have listened to that. There was clearly a, a moment at the end of the pandemic where the market was, the labor market was very screwed up. It's not now. Unemployment's actually rising. So it's absurd to be bringing in large numbers of low wage workers when unemployment is rising. Uh, second, a lot of lobbying from certain provinces, notably Ontario, and from the higher education sector. Um, Ontario in particular has really over the last few years squeezed higher education, especially the colleges. Ontario, seen, the government of Ontario seemed to have thought it sort of found a magic solution where it could say, well, we don't have to sub have taxpayers subsidize colleges as, as much. We can have them bring in essentially unlimited numbers of foreign students paying higher tuition. Um, federal government didn't want to sort of stop that. So it issued the visa. So we, yeah, we've got a, a strange system where discrete groups have lobbied um, and it feels like that's sort of all the government listened to rather than listening to the big picture of what's the long-term impact this is going to have on the economy and on society. Tony, you've helped us really get a, a very fulsome picture of the entire political landscape here. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. It was great to talk to you. Tony Keller is a Globe and Mail columnist. There are a lot of different perspectives on this issue, and you might want to chime in. We'd love to hear from you. one 888 sorry, one 888 You can also text us. This is a different number, 226-758-8924. You can reach us uh, online, cbc.ca slash aircheck. Rupa Banerjee is standing by listening to this conversation. Uh, she is the Canada Research Chair in the Economic Inclusion of Immigrants. She's also a an associate professor at the Toronto Metropolitan University. We covered a lot of territory there, both both political and economic, speaking to columnist Tony Keller. As you were listening to that interview, Rupa, I was wondering if there were some pieces of it that stood out for you. Absolutely. I think uh, the area that I'm most concerned about is the backlash. Um, you know, there are uh, policy issues and economic issues, and, and those are, they're complicated and they're going to be a challenge to fix. But I think if the, um, if the opinion of the public shifts, that's going to be particularly challenging to bring around. Uh, Canada has been in a really unique and privileged place where, uh, you know, as Tony said, uh, we just had a broad general consensus that immigration was good for the country and it was well controlled as well. Um, and my fear is that that backlash will spill over, not just into sort of uh, political views, but also into the everyday experiences of immigrants themselves and uh, not just immigrants, but even folks who are racialized, right? So uh, issues of racism are also very deeply intertwined into people's perceptions of immigration. So that's what I worry about, is that our social inclusion, our social cohesion could actually, you know, be affected and be warped by, by this particular uh, sort of crisis that we're in right now. Thank you very much, Arupa. Our next caller has expressed a similar concern about where we're putting our focus and where we're putting a blame. Anne Groob is from Chase, BC. Anne, hello. Hello. Hi there. So thanks so much for, for calling Aircheck. You are. I, I, should been... say, I, I should say I'm from unceded Schwetmuk territory, too. 
Oh, thank you for that acknowledgement yeah. of, the, of the territory that you're on. Well, it, it's just another issue in the whole thing. With, certainly, yeah. <laughs> it's, it certainly is how, how important it is to, to acknowledge that. Thank you. Um, you're, and it's interesting because this is part of the conversation that you want to have with us today. You have been sort of looking over your shoulder at some of the historical context here, and you're not sure we've got the conversation of the framing right. Can you tell me what you mean? Well, when I heard the question, I thought, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the right question. Um, uh, it, we we should be just talking about how do we solve this housing problem and not having anything to do with immigrants or like trying to blame people from coming and creating the problem because uh, yeah that, uh, some uh, one of your speakers mentioned that too the backlash that that bothers me but um, as the as the daughter of immigrants who in those days were more or less welcome. My father, being a Dane, who came in the 20s and worked in the agricultural sector, and then was a Second World War veteran with the Canadian Army, uh, and then my mother, British. But um, So when my father came back after the Second World War, he was able to, through the Veterans Land Act, the federal program, was able to purchase some land, which he would have never otherwise been able to do. And so he had that assistance, and then he was able to build our home on the farm. And so, you know, these things have been done in the past, assisting people. And then it came into my life again later, the Veterans Land Act, because in Kamloops there were quite a few homes built for returning veterans. And then as a single mom in the 90s, I needed a home there. And I was able to purchase one, a little old house uh, built in the 50s. And when they were built, there was a kitchen, living room, two bedrooms, bathroom, just basic. Um, But by the time I bought it, it had been renovated somewhat. There were three more bedrooms downstairs, another bathroom. So it it was perfect. And it only cost me 127500 I still remember the exact amount. Um, So I could manage it. But now it's assessed at almost half a million for the same place without a lot of renovations, although my son did uh, was able to build a mainway house in the backyard. So that's maybe part of it, but it's not fancy. And the thing is, that required municipal rezoning, and we had to apply twice, but again, that provided a home for a young person. And currently, there are three students living in the house, and my son looks after it. But it's another solution to me that uh, we're, you know, we're not looking at. Um, the the so solution that you're describing is, is one in which there is a, a lot more focus on on making that housing accessible and affordable and, and focusing on that on its own, regardless of, of who we think is coming uh, to look mm-hmm. for that housing. So regardless of who yeah. the candidate is, whether they were born in Canada, whether they're a newcomer, yeah. whatever their exactly. situation is, whether they're temporary or permanent, that if we if we focus more solidly, specifically and only on housing, you feel that that would be a better entryway into this conversation. Uh, much better. And over the years mm-hmm. in that little house, I had international students, uh, just local TRU, uh, university students, uh, even high school students sometimes, whoever needed a place, and then young people working but you know, couldn't, uh, manage the so needed to share a house or in a place. So I, ju- I just think that um, the solutions, a lot of them have been tried and done in the past, and the government quickly mobilized after the Second World War, but for some reason they're not willing to do that now. And it, it's all to do with the market, I realize that, but that's, I think, where we need to um, 
uh, make a shift. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time, and thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. For, thanks for letting me rant. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it, and it, it's, a, it's a unique perspective that we hadn't had yet today, so thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You are listening to Cross Country Checkup. We are still taking calls and we would love to hear from you. 1-888-416-8333. Our question, and Anne pointed out that we could frame it differently. So maybe you have a similar opinion. Maybe you think we've got it. We've nailed it right on the head. We'd be so interested in your perspective. Is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what's your stake in this? I want to go to our next caller, uh, Heather Ehrlich. Eric Slaven, is that how I say your last name? That's right. Hi there. Nice to nice to speak with you. You're in uh, the Okanagan in BC. Wow, very beautiful. Um, I want to come to you. You've been thinking about the shortage of housing, um, but your your perspective. You're looking at communities we haven't actually talked about a lot today. Can you tell me what you're thinking as you're hearing this conversation? And I'm sorry to tell you this. We'll, well, if you don't get to the end of what you need to say, we only have a minute just now, but we could continue afterwards. So I might just cut in for a moment. All right, I'll be quick. So uh, a lot of interesting things said today, but um, I would just like to say that um, I work up in First Nations communities and uh, there is a housing shortage there as well. And I, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, that that is going to be um, not in the picture when um, moving forward uh, to building new homes. And that is something that we re- really need to look at. And the other thing that I quickly want to say is that um, uh, so here in British Columbia, we're aware that uh, the BC government has, has um, uh, it's kind of moving away from the Airbnb where people can make um, money, you know, renting out their 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 homes or, or rooms in their homes or whatever, and uh, they're wanting people to have more uh, permanent. Um, uh, they want to have people living in those spaces uh, long term, and I think. That when we put those uh, restrictions uh, on on people, it, it makes them upset, and so there should be other incentives for those homeowners um, to uh, rent out to long-term uh, tenants in, instead of imposing things on them. So that's just kind of what I wanted to say. And then, of course, please, uh, when we're building all these homes... I'm just going to cut you off for just one moment um, because we're going to say goodbye now to our TV viewers uh, on CBC News Network and we're going to continue with the show live on CBC Radio and CBC Gem. If you are tuned in on News Network, Rosemary Barton Live is next and that's on CBC News Network. Thanks for being here. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I really didn't want to cut you off there, Heather, and, and do feel that you can you can slow down. We got lots of time. We have another half hour on this topic, um, and, and you're you're covering things that are really interesting. You're looking at the possibilities of of regulation to to be supportive and helpful, um, which is not that different from from the caller before you, who was really saying that there's a there's a government responsibility here beyond looking at immigration, but actually looking at at supports for people who hold property, at supports for people who haven't got access to to housing. Um, so you've kind of got two 
two parts of this conversation going. Can you just explain a little bit more about the tax incentives that you're seeing in your community that you think would work? Oh, uh, so, so what I'm thinking of is, say a person who has an Airbnb um, were to change and have long-term tenants. Well, let's get them some, um, uh, let's decrease their taxes by a certain amount of percent. You know, something like that could be maybe looked at. Instead of saying, no, you've got to rent this out, you, you have to get rid of your Airbnb business and you have to rent this out to long-term tenants, you know. I, I, let, let's, let's have a... Let's give people choices and and uh, motivate them to make those changes uh, for the better for all. Thank you so much for your time, Heather. Thank you. Well, we're hearing a lot of different perspectives here. I want to go back to our uh, guests who've been sitting alongside with us uh, patiently. Randall Bartlett is the Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. Um, An interesting thought there, because the conversation that I've had with you so far has been about what we shouldn't be doing. And Heather was offering some thoughts on things that we could do that possibly incentivizing or creating policy that makes it less lucrative to do Airbnb and um, and, and, and more inviting or enticing to have more permanent residents. Uh, within properties that people own. As you're listening to those comments, what what are you thinking? Well, I mean, we've written extensively on the issue of short-term rentals. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that we've found is that uh, as they become, and not just us, but researchers around the world, that as they become more prolific in communities, uh, it does have a tendency to drive up home prices and then also drive up rents as well as you start to see that uh, longer-term rentals are, are removed from the short-term rental market. And you don't get the sort of new stock of, sh- of longer-term rentals entering the market. And so a lot of communities have responded by tightening up uh, restrictions on the ability of short term rentals to be uh, to be brought onto market, uh, hoping that uh, those units will become long term rentals. And so certainly there are things that uh, the governments can do uh, to make it uh, more lucrative to put those uh, put those um, units on the long term rental market as opposed to the short term rental market. But landlords are just really responding, I think, and uh, to the incentives that are there for them. And really, that comes down to the fact that, um, you know, it, it's much easier to uh, be able to sort of control the conditions around your place, who's renting it for how long, uh, to be able to have verification of tenant ba- of of, uh, of those short term tenants, that sort of thing. And we found that uh, the revenues are ultimately higher on the short term rental market than the long term rental market currently. So uh, really, the incentives are there to put it on the short-term rental market now. There are things governments maybe can do on the margins, but it's pretty challenging uh, for them to do that. Well, I mean, I think I'm, at the end of the day, hearing, I'm hearing sorry. that as you're saying it. I can hear all the incentives for people to do short-term housing, but we have this, this crisis of, of people who can't find a place to, to create permanency, to create lives for themselves, lives for families, being near schools and, and grocery. You know, sometimes the Airbnb places are also in some of those most in-demand communities. Um, is, is there any way, well, first of all, maybe I should just ask you, is is that Airbnb piece or short-term rentals or places that are not put up for permanency, is that a significant piece of this story or is this something that's kind of on the margins of that housing and affordability conversation? We think there's no silver bullet to solving the housing supply problem in Canada. This is the short-term rental aspect of it is certainly a piece, but a very small part of it uh, in our view. Um, there are many other things that uh, governments need to do in order to dramatically increase this, the supply of housing, both permanent uh, purpose-built rental housing and uh, and market housing. And uh, this is the short-term rental uh, restrictions uh, will have a near-term positive impact, we think, on increasing the supply. Uh, but that's going to be just one small piece 
piece of the puzzle. Really what it comes down to is removing significant barriers to building and actually providing additional incentives to building more housing and increasing density, not just in the biggest cities in our country, but in, in all communities in, our, in, uh, in Canada in order to ensure that people have, uh, have adequate uh, places to, uh, to live and, and raise their families. That's an important point that you're making. I want to make sure we keep everybody on the same page. When you say remove barriers, what do you mean? Well, exclusionary zoning has been a devastating part of restricting housing supply in Canada. When you look at, especially some of the major cities, um, looking at, say, Toronto as an example, it's one of the least dense major cities in uh, in North America. Uh, large parts of the city were only allowed to build single detached uh, family uh family housing. And so uh, for a long time, there are enormous restrictions which prevented the increase in density. And I think that didn't just exist there, but it exists broadly in, in cities large and small across the country. And I think reducing those barriers, allowing for more density, uh, thinking about you know what our city, we want our cities to look like uh, from a public transit, transit and infrastructure planning perspective to make sure that uh, you know folks can, can easily get around uh, within those cities, can live densely, and ultimately uh, on a per capita basis, uh, make sure people can meet their needs and also reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, so there needs to be a lot bigger thinking going on in Canada uh, around city planning as opposed to just uh, saying no and then uh, supporting sprawl across the country. You've really helped us understand just how multifaceted this question is. There isn't, as you said, there is no silver bullet, but thank you for for pulling a, a few of those, those really big themes out so we can understand them. I want to go to someone who reached out to us on AirCheck. Laura Artabello is from Flesherton. Laura, hello. You have been feeling that the housing crisis is something that affects you in your rural community which is not a story we've managed to get into much today. What are you seeing? Hi, Laura, can you hear me? We're going to go on to Dereid Abbas. And uh, Laura, if you're hearing this on the air, we would really love to connect with you so you can try and reconnect with us. But meanwhile, we're going to Dereid, who is uh, in Montreal. He is an immigrant, and this topic has really struck a chord with him. Hi, what are you hearing? Hello, hi. Uh, yes, uh, it, uh, as, I, as you said, it's a code with me. I'm a immigrant in Canada for 25 years. And uh, uh, I would like to share my perspective as an immigrant and uh, citizen. Uh, because uh, I think one of the areas that are not being discussed, and or I rarely, rarely hear being discussed, is the, uh, not the number of that are being allowed in Canada, but the distribution of them. I feel that, uh, uh, and I feel strongly, because I think that's the fact is that a lot of the immigrants that come, they, uh, they come to see as an immigrant. Mostly in Toronto uh, and Montreal and Vancouver, and uh, which, is, which is causing cities, uh, especially Toronto, uh, but in Britain, it's very... Uh, that's great. Uh, there's an overwhelming um, uh, uh, immigration there, and I'm, I'm so sorry, Dorade. We have a, a really poor connection with you, and the, I can hear some of what you're saying, and it's so interesting. We'd really like to hear. I'm going to send you back to our control room for a moment. We're going to see if we can get a better connection with you, um, but but please don't don't feel rejected. It's it's more that we uh, we would really like to understand what you're saying, and I'm having trouble hearing you between uh, some of the the buzzes and interference that we're getting there. Um, we are now going to continue this conversation. If you're just tuning in to Cross Country Checkup, we are asking the question: Is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? And what is your stake in this? 
Well, we heard very briefly about international students and some of what people who are not international students are thinking. But why don't we speak to somebody who actually is living that experience right now? International students are one of the groups that is at the center of this conversation about Canada's immigration policy and its part in the housing crisis. A federal uh, immigration minister has suggested that a cap could be coming for the number of students allowed into the country to study as foreign students. To bring us some of that perspective, we're going to be speaking to Tracy Carahogo, who is here with us. She is the president of the University of Manitoba's Student Union and a fourth-year psychology student from Uganda. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for being with us. You're joining us from Winnipeg. Tracy, as I just mentioned, international students are really um, one of those big focal points in this conversation. And I want to ask you about that. But first, can you tell me what it was like when you were looking for housing as an international student? How, how difficult was it for you to find a place to live? Um, so just to put it in context, I came to Canada in 2019, right around the beginning of September. And for my first semester, I lived on campus on the University of Manitoba, but unfortunately, even though it was such a great place for me to build community, it was too expensive for me as an international student. And from the stories I had had, most students were like, okay, maybe you should try off-campus. So when I started looking into off-campus housing, I moved around a lot because some of the landlords that I found, they would put a picture of a specific place. But when I arrived at the place, it had very, it looked very different. And then I reached a point whereby I stayed in a house with eight, we were eight of us in that house. And it was obvious I had a very tiny room compared to my office that I'm even sitting in right now as the president. So it was very difficult for me to find a place because it was still expensive then. And as we know with inflation, rent has definitely increased. And unfortunately, this is still a story for so many international students almost four years later who are still experiencing the same issues that I did. We're going to get into more of Tracy's story in just a moment. If you are tuning in to Cross Country Checkup, we have about 20 minutes left with our main topic. We've been talking about whether or not Canada is striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability. And we're asking what your stake in this conversation is. At the half hour, so in about 20 minutes, we are going, you're going to want to stay tuned for our Ask Me Anything this weekend, uh, especially if you are a parent or a caregiver for somebody who's immunocompromised, because we are going to be talking about invasive group A strep. And this is a more serious bacterial infection that comes from the same bacteria that causes uh, what you would know of as the common strep throat. We're going to be speaking to Dr. Fatima Kakar, who will join us to take all of your questions. She is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. So please do call in. If you have questions, we are taking them now. 1-888-416-8333. Meanwhile, I am speaking to Tracy, who is the uh, president um, of the student union at uh, the University of Manitoba. Uh, Tracy, if we get a little bit deeper into this, the question that we've been asking is, is Canada striking the right balance between welcoming newcomers and housing affordability? I'm wondering, if, as you hear that question, how does it land with you? Um, when I definitely had this question, I was thinking about it and I was like, Housing is such a complex issue, and I feel scared as an international student that we are being used sort of as a scapegoat for housing. As international students, we are not actually the sources of this crisis, but we are victims of the crisis of trying to look for where to stay. Uh, Up to date, I still have so many international students who 
cannot afford to live in these apartments. I think one thing that so many people who are not international students do not know is obviously as you're looking for an apartment as a new international student, you'll be asked for a credit history or you'll be asked for a guarantor. But how are you supposed to know a guarantor if you've been in this country for a month? So most of the times they actually do not get access to this housing. There are so many different barriers for international students. So when I thought about the question, I was also worried because I did hear some of the previous speakers talking about the backlash. The backlash is definitely something that is worrisome for so many of international students because it feels like we are being blamed for the housing crisis. Yet, in fact, international students bring in over 22 billion into economic benefit. We are supporting over 200,000 jobs. And on top of that, we still contribute 3.7 billion tax revenue. So international students are not just sitting here. And I believe that we are contributing a lot to Canada in general when we talk about the critical gaps in healthcare, in construction, in education, in retail. International students should not be blamed, but I think we should come together as a country and find different solutions in order to actually tackle housing because it is such a complex issue to put on one group of people as the ones who might be stopping you know, other people from getting housing. Because the truth is, if housing is expensive, whether you are an international student, permanent resident, citizen, you can either afford it or you unfortunately cannot. So maybe we should switch our talk to how is the access to housing? How is the affordability when we are talking about housing? I think those are issues that need to be brought at the forefront. I want to um, pose a question to you that comes from some of the comments we've been hearing today. A number of times, uh, various callers and experts have, have suggested that it's actually kinder to, to newcomers and temporary workers and particularly international students if we slow this process down, if we reduce our numbers and, and try to make sure that some of the things you just spoke about, the gaps in healthcare, that housing affordability and availability are secure, that if that we need to take care of things in-house as an act of fairness, as a, as a kindness towards people who want to be in the country. How do you respond to that? I think one important thing, you know, being here as an international student, I've learned that in the provinces, there's there are different experiences for the different provinces. And I think capping the number of international students who come to Canada it's not a one-size-fits-all solution because we have to think about how will that affect the provinces. You know, yes, it might be true because when we look at the um, the crisis of housing in Vancouver, we definitely know that it is a bit way worse compared to maybe you might say uh, Toronto or other places. But looking at how will that affect the different provinces. And at the same time, when we talk about housing as an issue, yes, it is true that talking, you know, making sure that in-house things are going well. But I think tying the conversations together is what is really disheartening because it feels like international students are being blamed. So it's that worry of why are the conversations being tied together? When you talk about housing, the truth is that most international students cannot even afford the housing that we have right here. So it, it doesn't really matter whether we cap you know, the number of international students coming in, because even if we reduce the number of those coming in and they still cannot afford the housing that is here, then have we really made a difference? Because either even if we reduce the numbers coming in, but they still can't afford the housing, then that is a deeper conversation. So I feel like capping the number of international students is not the solution that we are looking for. You are a very impressive advocate. You must be very good in your role representing student needs. And it's been fascinating to have your, your perspective today. Tracy, thank you very much. Thank you so much.
Tracy Carahogo is the president of the University of Manitoba's Student Union. Um, I want to just tell you what's happening in about 15 minutes from now. Our AMA, Ask Me Anything, on invasive group A strep. There are record numbers of cases this year in Canada. It is potentially very serious, so we need to get as much information as we can so that you can stay safe and the people you take care of can be can be kept safe, particularly children who are vulnerable. Uh, but as always, there's a lot of context that can be missing when you scan the headlines. It can be very frightening, and we want to turn the volume down on some of that by providing as much information as we can. Pediatric infectious diseases specialist Dr. Fatima Kakar is going to be joining us with some advice, but we need your calls to make that conversation happening. Make make that conversation happen. You can call us now. The number is 1-888-416-8333. I'll read that one more time. 1-888-416-8333. Three, three. You can also send your questions to cbc.ca dot, uh, slash aircheck. That's cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm very pleased to see that uh, Dereda Bass has called us back. We have a better connection now. Um, Dereda, I'm sorry to ask you to repeat some of your story. You were speaking about your experience as an immigrant and also um, how you're seeing this conversation on housing and where you think we might be getting it wrong. Yes, hello. It's not uh, about uh, sorry about the connection. Uh, not a problem at all. So, so glad that you called back. Do tell us what it is that you're thinking as you're hearing this conversation. Yeah, I would like to add to the conversation. There is a point that I don't hear being discussed, uh, uh, which is uh, it's usually we, when we did. did talk about any immigration, we talk about the number of immigration, we don't talk about the distribution of immigration. Uh, in Canada, I think what we're having is that most immigrants come to few urban centers uh, like Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, and uh, there's a huge concentration of, uh, of uh, immigration there. And that's, if, I don't know if we can correlate it, I'm not a statistician, with the housing crisis, I think we can, we can see see a strong correlation and uh, and uh, and I think uh, and while on the on the other hand there are areas uh, like uh, other cities and areas in the country that like uh, severely lack services like doctors and engineers and and they could benefit a lot from immigration so there is a, a huge uh, discrepancy between what uh, what we uh, how we are handling immigration and and the the number of immigration is not the only uh, aspect that we should be talking about. So you want to see the conversation conversation shift not just um, in terms of of numbers, but to actually think about where people are living. What is the quality of life when they get there? What what needs do they fulfill when they arrive? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, from my from my uh, life as an immigrant for 25 years, I can share many stories where both sides, you know, as uh, immigrants and and residents can benefit. Uh, when immigrants, I can t- tell you as an immigrant, when immigrants come to big cities and they concentrate in big cities, what happens is that they, they I mean, it's, it's convenient to, to live in a big city within your community. They get uh, attracted to their own communities and they, they, they uh, start living with their communities. What happens is that they integrate their, their, uh, their, their integration is, is affected very negatively. They don't learn their language uh, quicker. Uh, it's uh, the jobs that they get are, are lesser quality from their, uh, from their uh, qualification. Uh, and 
and and the level, the integration, the speed of integration affects them very negatively. And from the other side, as I said, you know, the the areas that uh, can benefit from immigrants uh, can benefit a lot. And, and many of my personal experiences, my my friends and. Uh, uh, who who worked in uh, in remote areas, not uh, not remote areas, but in areas outside these four or five urban centers that that attract immigrants. Uh, people who worked in Moncton, who worked in St. John's, they had very. It was initially it is um, it is not convenient. It's hard to live in a remote area. Out, you know, uh, you don't you're a newcomer. You don't speak the language. Mm. Uh, but but. But eventually, they have a very positive experience because they can work in a in a in a job that uh, that is uh, that meets their qualification, uh, and they integrate better, and and uh, uh, their experience is much more positive in the end. Dorit, I'm so grateful for your perspective. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. So we have a wide variety of opinions on the table. Maybe you have an opinion about something that you are hearing. Uh, you can always reach us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. Um, Joseph Campbell is in Toronto, and he is a landlord. I'm going to come to you next. Joseph, hello. Hello. Hi, Hi. there. I want to um, come to your perspective. We are um, getting close to the end of our show, so I'm, I'm sorry to squeeze you into a slightly smaller spot. Um, but I do want to hear what you have to say, because you um, have, have firsthand experience as a landlord uh, and, and have had actual conversations with people who are in a temporary situation um, and, and are, are here with a lot of hopes and dreams. Yes. Um, thanks very much. I want to sum it up. First, I want to say that the call you had at the beginning of the program Santim, I think his name was, young man, an immigrant. Sanjim, that's right. Sanjim, um, encourage that person to get into public policy and, and run for office. He nailed the issue, absolutely, and spoke with such clarity and such honesty. Um, so if I just, have, I'll just remind folks that some of what he was speaking about was he was very concerned about distribution of resources and taking care of people um, in Canada spoke, first. And he, he spoke very eloquently about um, his he, feeling that charities had started at home and that it was OK to stem some of the numbers, bring numbers of, of immigrants um, down and, and close the doors a little bit. It's charity, but it's also basic home economics. You wouldn't invite people over for the holidays if you have a four bedroom house. You would not invite 30 people to your house and to stay for the holidays. And that's what we've done in Canada. And it's just simple. This is not a complex issue. This is a simple issue. We have a supply issue that goes back for 50 years. And I'm a 62-year-old man. I know what I'm talking about here, growing up in this country. We have a massive supply issue. We have not been building houses for 50 years. That's a political policy issue that people have alluded to earlier. And it's, it's it, we should toss out almost every level of government, because every level of government, starting from city councillors all the way up to the provinces and the federal government, have strangled supply. And it is a crime of epic proportions. They make it impossible for people like me who want to take a lifetime's worth of savings and build new rental housing. It's impossible. I'm telling you that, honestly. I would not recommend this business to anybody. It's uh, it's mind-boggling how difficult it is. Meanwhile, you've um, been... And I you've been... other businesses. So we've got a supply issue. But you don't take a supply issue, which is a, a tinderbox, and then pour jet fuel on it and throw a match on top of it. And that's what we've done with our broken immigration system. And it is... And you mean that because you're seeing the numbers go up, because you're seeing the numbers go up, and as somebody who wants to build housing, you're seeing that there's a block at building it. The numbers are insane. 
and it's a red herring for your economists from Desjardins to talk about things like Airbnb. You could move every Airbnb in the country. It wouldn't make a difference for the number of people that get off the plane to Pearson Airport that are looking for a place and a bed to sleep in. And those people call me every day when I advertise an apartment, and they're begging, and they will sleep eight to a room. Not only is not just a human, that, that is just, it's, it's obscene, but it's a basic violation of a building code. There are irresponsible landlords that will do that, and there are too many of them, unfortunately. And these people are not arriving to go to the University of Toronto or the University of Manitoba, where that young woman called in from. That's a recognized, credible institution. They're going to fake colleges. I asked them where they're going to school. Never heard of these places. I can't find them. They're fake. We have a huge fraud issue going on around immigration. And like uh, Sanjim said, it is going to explode as a social problem and a political problem if we don't stop it immediately. Joseph, I'm, I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm, I'm so grateful. You, you clearly care very much about, uh, about this issue, and I'm, I'm grateful for your insight, particularly as you bring that landlord perspective and the, and the dire straits that you're seeing people in firsthand. Thank you for that. Um, I want to come briefly to you, Randall, and those of you who are just tuning in. Randall Bartlett is the Senior Director of, the Canadian, Economic, of Canadian Economics at Desjardins. I only just have a, about a, a minute, but I was wondering if you might like to respond to some um, of what Joseph had to say. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's very challenging to build a new uh, purpose-built rental in this country. I mean, we uh, have seen recently the federal government has removed the uh, the HST on purpose-built rental in an attempt to sort of level the playing field uh, with uh, building uh, building condominiums, and I think it's a step uh, certainly in the in the right direction. Uh, I agree with it that uh, you know there is no silver bullet to solving this problem. That uh, reducing the, the share of short-term rentals and the total rental stock that's out there isn't really going to materially move the needle, as I said earlier. So, um, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with his uh, his sentiment on that. At the end of the day, it comes down to making it easier for landlords like him to uh, be able to take the savings that they've built up, invest it in purpose-built rental uh, housing, and uh, ultimately increase the uh, the rental stock in uh, in our communities. And ultimately, uh, that, that comes through increased density uh, overall and communities providing a supportive regulatory environment to be able to do that. You're you're giving us that, that, that wide lens perspective. It'll come to one sentence that he said. He said the system is... Is broken, um, and and he and you know you could hear he he had a great deal of passion that he was bringing to it. Would you agree with that? The the, the statement the system is broken. I don't think our immigration system is broken. When we look at uh, permanent residents coming into the country, uh, their outcomes are actually uh, increasingly uh, positive and closer to workers born in Canada. What I think is broken is what's happening in terms of the uh, the temporary residents that are coming to Canada, whether that's students coming in as foreign students. And as he said, there's, a, there's some fraud in the system that's been documented. That needs to get solved. Uh, but even foreign students are a small part of the non-permanent residents coming to the country. Many are coming here at the request of employers. We've significantly reduced the barriers required to bring someone into Canada as a worker on a temporary basis through a relatively new program called the International Mobility Program. The old temporary foreign worker program required a labor market impact assessment. The newer program, the International Mobility Program, does not. It's, it's so very think- interesting. Both you and, and our other um, guest, uh, Rupert Banerjee, you've, you've both been saying checks and balances seem to be at the core of, of, of what you're seeing as a failure here. 
That's right. I think at the end of the day, it's really about making sure that uh, we're addressing uh, appropriate labor market needs in a thoughtful way and taking into account uh, the, uh, the the potential impacts on the broader economy of uh, bringing in large numbers of people to satisfy short-term demand, but bringing them in and uh, very quickly uh, and uh, potentially uh, causing additional strain on the uh, on the economy and and, and households and and uh, uh, that have been here for a while and other newcomers as well. I want to thank both you and uh, and Rupa Rupa Banerjee, the Canadian Research Chair in the Economic Inclusion of Immigrants at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, has been offering some commentary um, on the lives of newcomers in Canada as we as we look at housing. And Randall Bartlett, who you just heard from, uh, Senior Director of Canadian Economics at Desjardins, providing us some of that wide lens economic perspective. Thank you both for for being here. It's such a incredibly complex topic, and you've certainly made it more accessible for us and helped us navigate some of the, the woolier pieces of this conversation. Thank you so much Thanks for having so us. Much. You are listening to Cross Country Checkup. I'm Saroja Coelho, and that was an interesting conversation. You can definitely continue to contribute if you want to say something to us on, on social media. You can find us at cbc.ca slash aircheck. We are going to make a bit of a left turn now because it is time for our Ask Me Anything with Dr. Fatima Kakar, who is going to be speaking to us about Group A Strep. And you've been calling in with some of your questions. Unless we're going to start to think about our Ask Me Anything. Health authorities are sounding the alarm tonight. Across Canada, cases of invasive streptococcus A soared to record highs last year. Well, there's no cause for panic. Most of these cases are mild. But when strep goes downhill, it happens fast. Because we've had a significant respiratory viral season with COVID, RSV and influenza, all those things can also increase the risk of group A strep becoming more invasive. Parents are encouraged to get their child assessed immediately if they have a prolonged fever, rash or trouble waking up. Canada is seeing a record number of cases of invasive group A strep. You've probably heard of strep throat, and this is a more serious infection involving the very same bacteria. We're going to try to understand some of that as we move forward. And although many cases can still be mild, the infection can be fatal in some cases. We're going to pull that apart as well. Public Health Ontario has reported 48 deaths between October and December of of last year, of 2023, including six children. New Brunswick saw 10 deaths in 2023 and already to this year. BC, Quebec, Manitoba also seeing a rise in cases. On top of all of this is the regular respiratory virus season that everybody is grappling with. So we're going to start to ask some questions so we can be as informed as possible. Dr. Fatima Kakar is here to offer some advice and to and to tell us a bit about what we should be looking for. She is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist at Saint-Justine Hospital and an associate professor in pediatrics at the University of Montreal. And she's here to take your calls and answer questions for the next 30 minutes. That's lots of time to get the health information that you need. You can reach us at one 416 8333 You can ask her anything about group A strep. Again, the number one 416 8333 Dr. Kakar, thank you so much for joining us. 
I'm happy to be here. Why don't we begin with some of those headlines that we're seeing? Record numbers of cases of group A strep. Can you put some of that into context for us? How prevalent is group A strep right now? So it is very common right now. And I'll be honest and say that we've had more this past year than we've had pretty much in any previous year that I have on record. And I'll say that it's been constant since about last fall. So usually in group A strep, we have seasonal peaks. It follows a respiratory virus. But we saw cases heading straight into the summer. And then we saw this, this new peak end of fall um, into the early December, January months. So it is much more common um, than we've seen in previous years. And there's just much more hospitalized severe cases than we've seen previously. If you are listening to this and you're feeling uh, a little bit concerned, um, we are definitely going to address the question of children. If you have a child and you're concerned about what to look for or you're interested in asking very specific questions about your situation, you can reach us at 1-888-416-8333. Dr. Kakar, um, another number that is jumping out at me when I'm reading about this, invasive group A strep, this this number is actually really, really scary and I, I'm hoping we can put it into context, kills one in 10 people who contract it. That seems like an enormous percentage. That's according to data obtained by CBC News. How serious is invasive group A stress? And I guess part of the really important part of that question is the the people who contract it. So maybe we need to understand how easy it is to contract it. And is that 10% fatality number correct? No, those are really great questions. I know it, it sounds it, it is alarming, but just to put it into context, so group A strep is very common. Most infections are going to be very mild, so strep throat, scarlet fever. Some are going to be moderate, sort of the hospitalized, really severe cases of pneumonia or complicated head and neck infections. And then a very small percentage are going to be the severe invasive group A strep. And the two kinds we worry the most about. Our one is a really bad skin condition that's, that commonly is called flesh-eating disease or necrotizing fasciitis that progresses really, really quickly. And the other kind is toxic shock, where there is so much strep in the system that it just overwhelms the body system. And the challenge and the reason there's such a high fatality is that it progresses so quickly. So within hours, it can lead to mortality. And so that figure you quoted is actually quite accurate. And it's one of the reasons that we in infectious diseases, we jump on these cases. Um, we come into hospital, we don't wait because when we have a high suspicion of invasive strep, we need to act very, very, very quickly. And so it is a high mortality, and it's one of the cases, the type of cases in infectious diseases that we worry the most about, but it's a very small percentage of the overall cases of group A strep. We have a very, um, very, very sad interview on uh, cbc.ca this week, um, a mother who said that, that she didn't feel that she'd reacted quickly enough. Um, the symptoms seemed so benign, and her, her child seemed to be okay for such a long time. And then suddenly, within 15 hours, everything changed. Now, that's really got to strike a chord of fear in the heart of anyone who's caring for a child or somebody who's immunocompromised. What are the symptoms that we need to look at? Because we are living right now in the, it, it is winter, everybody's hacking and, and sneezing. And there's, you know, it, it's it's a, a time where it's very easy to, to think that you've picked up something very, very serious. When do we have to take this seriously? Does it sounds like time is of the essence if you do actually have this infection? It is. And I'll be honest, a lot of the job is up to us as doctors. When we're seeing these cases, we're taking these phone calls to really make that diagnosis and to, to have the alarm. But there's a couple of, I think, red flags and a couple of things keep people can be reassured about. 
The first thing is group A strep is not the common cold. So if you have cold symptoms, runny nose, congestion, pink eye, and those are the cold and it's very unlikely to be group A strep. Strep throat in and of itself is really sore throat, difficulty swallowing, fever, but you don't usually have those other viral symptoms. So the cough, the congestion, the runny nose. And what usually happens with invasive group A strep is that it's secondary, it happens after a bad viral infection. So maybe you had influenza or the flu, you got better, but then about two to three weeks later, that bacteria, which you might've also had in your throat becomes invasive. So one thing to watch out for is after a cold, you've gotten better, you get worse. So you get a secondary infection that could be signs of something serious. And then the second thing are the clinical side. So parents know their children, if at any point, and they're really non-responsive. They seem to be having very high fever. And again, usually after a viral illness, this fever is persisting for three or more days. They look very unwell, or they have what we call a scarlatiniform rash, a really typical sandpaper rash, or just really an overall, uh, we call sunburn-like rash. Those are, are signs that it could be group A strep. So I urge people not to hesitate if they have those signs, but not to worry if they have common cold-like symptoms. I want to go to a caller on the line now. Gregory Liverpool is joining us from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Gregory, hello. Hello, and you're doing a very good job substituting for Ian H. Thank you very uh, much. I take that. That is a, a probably the most wonderful thing somebody could say to me today. Yeah, Those I, was, are I, was big watching, shoes. I was just watching my TV. I'm thinking, oh, that, you're not Ian H. Okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking, okay, I'll just listen anyway. Thank uh, you very so, much, yeah. Gregory. Um, I'm going to pass you over to, to Dr. Uh, Kakar. You have a question about vaccinations. Yes, it's a straightforward question. I'm just because I could bet you uh, a lot of people are freaking out uh, of this is, is in the, ch- in the uh, chain in terms of viral and bacterial infections since we came off of COVID and we have long COVID and we have. RSV and all that, and and the common flu bug going around. So I'm thinking with this going around in the chamber, do we need to think about having uh, mass vaccinations such as we had with the the COVID-19 pandemic and stuff? So... No, that's that's a great thought. Unfortunately, group A strep is a really complicated bacteria and we don't have a vaccine for it. But I'm really glad you raised that question because what's happening is that people are getting COVID or RSV or influenza, and then group A strep is happening after that. And a lot of people aren't vaccinated for uh, COVID this season or influenza this season, and even the RSV vaccine that's available for older seniors. So one good way to prevent getting invasive group A strep is to prevent that virus first. So if you're not up to date for COVID, influenza, RSV, those would be good vaccines to get. But unfortunately for group A strap, we don't have a vaccine yet, and there's none then imminent follow, on the pipeline. Then my follow-up question is why we do not have the vaccines at, at this disposal since we basically developed COVID uh, vac- vaccines in a very fat, lightning fast pace type of situation. Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's it's really the, that it's a complicated bacteria with a capsule that's really hard to provide adequate vaccination again. So it's really the microbiology of the bacteria. And there have been people working on this vaccine for years, but it's a very difficult vaccine because there are so many different serotypes that it's really hard um, to have one. But there are many different groups trying to work on one because not just here, but globally it would have a huge impact if we could reduce the amount that we had. 
Gregory, thank you so much for your question. We're going to move on to um, Robert Langlois, who is in Yorkton, Saskatchewan, um, who has sent us a text message asking how strep throat is passed from person to person. Yes, good question. Um, it's very close contact. So it is spread through droplets, but you have to be very, very, very close in proximity to people who have group A strep. So someone who has group A strep, hugs, kisses, very close family contacts, and very rarely through surfaces. So if you cough directly on your hands and you're contaminating somebody else. So it's not airborne in the same way that COVID is, that it really passes through large distances. You have to have very close contacts um, and usually household contacts. And most of the time, it's people who've got uh, contact with young children. Well, yeah, the first thing I thought about was uh, children who've been in our house and touch everyone and everything. And their their <laughs> curiosity is, is utterly tactile. They just have to, to physically be in the presence of all things at all times. So, of course, it's very difficult to control that because adults, you can tell to, to wash hands and mask and step back and all kinds of stuff. But that's uh, utterly impossible with a, with a seven-year-old. Oh, exactly. And so daycares and schools, they're prime sources of outbreaks and contacts. So um, unfortunately, yeah, small kids can't keep their secretions to themselves. Well, that's maybe we we will definitely before the end of the hour review some of those things to watch out for for anybody who has small children at home. There's some of that list of symptoms that you described so important. And so those those kinds of facts are, are such a wonderful defense against panic. Um, I want to go to a call that we got from Nan who wanted to know what, if any, relationship is there between strep A and strep B. And the reason that Nan is asking is that um, Nan has three family members of different generations who are susceptible to strep B um, and wonders if they need to be worried then about strep A. Oh, these are such great questions. So group B strep is in the same family. So it's the streptococcus, the type of bacteria. Um, it's group B because of a different serotype and it affects people differently. So group B strep um, actually is very common uh, during pregnancy. Pregnant women may be carriers of this and it causes severe disease in newborns and infants. So generally in adults or um, in older children, group B strep is not a problem, but it's really a big problem for newborn babies and infants. So if, for example, we see a woman in pregnancy who is a carrier and tests positive for group B strep, we will give her antibiotics to prevent transmission to the baby. Um, so if somebody's many multiple family members have had group B strep, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be susceptible to group A strep, but there are instances where there are what we call family primary immunodeficiencies. And um, again, group B strep is not a common telltale sign of one of those primary immunodeficiencies, but if the folks who've had group B strep have had multiple recurrent other types of infections, then it could be something to investigate within the family. If I go back to that article I was reading earlier this week about the woman who lost her child, one of the things that she described was multiple trips to the doctor um, and, and this infection not having been identified. And I have two questions coming out of that, which is the first being, um, how easily does that happen that, that, a, that a medical professional might miss those, those symptoms or might miss that it's strep A. And then the second part of that is just how much of an advocate do we need to be? I mean, we all know that our hospitals are, are really um, experiencing ER overload, so nobody wants to go un unless they really, really need to. So how do we, how do we know, um, how do we advocate for ourselves and, and at the same time, um, you know, not give over into a, a panic that sends us into medical care we don't need? No, absolutely. And I know the systems are overwhelmed and getting appointments are so hard right now. I think the first thing is that the most important thing is to try and see 
if you're very worried about your child is to physically try and see somebody, whether it be a nurse practitioner, a doctor, someone who can assess their vital signs, look at their respiratory rate. I know there's a lot of telemedicine and people are calling in for advice. It's just, it's so hard. And I think as physicians, we're, we're really trained to look at the, the, look at the patient, look at the child and make that diagnosis. And um, so that's the first stream of advice is that um, if you're going to seek care, really try to seek in-person care if you're worried about your child. The other thing is to just not panic with viruses. So viral symptoms are so common right now, but usually if you have runny nose, congestion, cough, and you know that constellation of viruses, it's unlikely to be something severe. And then the third thing is, is that persistence of symptoms. So it's hard, it's hard to sort of look back retrospectively at what might've been missed in these cases. And, you know, in medicine, it happens all the time that we miss cases, but generally speaking, we have a child come in and for me, it's not clearly a viral infection. They look very unwell. That child will be kept under observation. And if we have any suspicion, we will do the blood test and the culture test to confirm what it is. Um, and I know the system is overwhelmed right now and, and people are wondering, but I think if a parent is very worried about their child, please don't hesitate to bring them in no matter how busy the system is. Sometimes it doesn't seem like we do a lot. You know, We might just measure their vital signs, look at their breathing, look at their oxygen, but just those simple things will tell us so much about which direction things are in and can help us sort of pick out the needle in the haystack that might be very severe in a few hours from presentation. I'm here with Dr. Fatima Kakar, who is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist in Montreal and is speaking to us about group A strep. You can ask her anything that you would like to know as cases are rising across Canada. You can give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. We've got another 15 minutes with Dr. Kakar. I'm going to go now to Ali Omar, who is in Montreal and recently had a COVID vaccination and has uh, some questions around that. Ali, can I... Uh, connect you with our doctor today. Yes, please. Thank you. What is your question? Yes, hi, doc. My question was or is, is like I recently had a COVID vaccination. And as you're from Quebec, I'm sure you're aware that when you take an appointment for a COVID vaccination, they actually offer you about four other vaccinations that covers about four influenzas. So my question was, what are there for influenza vaccination that the vaccination that that covers? Would you happen to know that? You're asking if it would cover strep A. That would be. Uh-huh. And also the one, which one is that? Are something respiratory something? Sure. Uh, right. Dr. Kakar, I'll leave you to answer that. Sure. Um, so the influenza vaccine is really just for influenza. It's just that there's four different serotypes that are in it. So there's 2A and 2B. And what happens is early in the season, it tends to be influenza A, and then later in the season, influenza B can come up. Um, and we try to pick the serotypes that are most likely to occur this year. So the influenza vaccine is really just for influenza. And I do highly recommend it for people if they haven't gotten it yet. We're sort of just starting to see the major rise in influenza. So it's not too late to be protected from it. And again, not having influenza will really help protect you from getting invasive strep. The other vaccine that you mentioned, the RSV, is much more limited and it's not quite available everywhere, um, I would say here in Quebec, but also across Canada. And right now it's really only approved for seniors, so it should be coming for pregnant women hopefully soon. Um, so if you do have an opportunity to get it and it's available, that too I definitely recommend uh, for seniors, but it's just less available and it's less publicly available pretty much across the country for now. 
Omar, thank you so much for your question. We've had such good questions today, uh, Dr. Kakar. People are really thoughtful. We've clearly um, come a long way from those those early days of, of fear about viruses and COVID-19. Everybody's become so thoughtful and articulate about how to describe illness. Um, we're going to go to Robert Brewster next, who is uh, on Vancouver Island. Oh, beautiful, in British Columbia. Um, Robert, what is your question for Dr. Kakar? Oh, good afternoon. Uh, yes, um, I actually uh, had an attack of group A strep uh, just over a year ago, just before Christmas, um, just over a year ago. Uh, but it was a skin infection. Um, I, uh, I've um, had eczema and allergies and stuff all my life. I'm a senior. And it started out on Friday. I had a bunch of red bumps on my legs, my knee. By Monday, I was covered in lesions and... I asked my apartment manager to call me a taxi to go to the hospital. She took one look at me and called an ambulance. <laughs> anyway, I spent over a week, oh, about a week in the hospital, and then I had to go back twice more, and uh, they were pumping me full of antibiotics. Uh, it just flared up so quickly. Uh, I thought I was getting a staph infection, which I've suffered before, but it just blew up so quick. Uh, it's a very dangerous disease. Uh, mostly I hear them talking about children getting it, but seniors can get it, and it can be a skin infection, and it can be awful. <laughs> I'm still suffering the effects, probably from long-term antibiotics as well. So. Robert, I'm just curious, uh, is there anything can be done to, um, uh, well, uh, anyway, uh, people with um, eczema and such should be warned that it's also dangerous to it's a senior. Most of the coverage I've heard so far is uh, children, so. You make such a good point, Robert, and thank you so much for bringing the seniors' experience into the conversation. Um, If I could frame a question for you, it sounds to me like you'd like to know um, what can be done to avoid some of the skin infection that you're describing. Would that be fair to a fair summary of what you're looking to find out from Dr. Kukai? Well, I'm just curious why it blew up so quick. I've never had a group A strep infection before, and it blew up like over the course. Like I said, Friday I had uh, red bumps coming off my leg. By Tuesday I was covered in lesions. You're, 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 you're laughing, but it, it must have been quite an ordeal. Um, oh, well, yeah, it was sort of. <laughs> Dr. Kakar, if I could let you lean into the conversation with some of the knowledge that you have to answer uh, Robert's questions. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad he raised the point of older adults and seniors. I'm a pediatrician, so I focus on kids, but it does affect older adults. And the older adults it tends to affect are those with skin conditions. So eczema, breakdown, or sometimes diabetes and really poor circulation. Um, some of your older listeners might remember former Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard, who actually had his leg amputated from invasive group A strap. He had necrotizing fasciitis, flesh-eating disease, and it had just progressed so quickly that it led to that. So I'm really glad in your case it was limited to the skin, but that's what happened. So this bacteria is really particular in that it produces a toxin, and it's this toxin that starts to degrade the skin and the muscle and really attack it very quickly. And so it's the toxin production that's really particular to this type of bacteria that makes things go so quickly. So in your case, it's the skin. It starts to break down the skin barriers and get it sometimes get into the the tissue and the fascia. Um, And then if it gets into the bloodstream and produces the the systemic, that causes the shock and that toxic shock. So it's really particular to this and another type of bacteria that produce these toxins that make it spread so quickly. Um, And I really like the point you raised about people with eczema and skin conditions, especially those who have contact with young children, because you want to be vigilant for these types of infections that progress quickly. So to keep your eczema under control and to do everything you can for really good skin care, you know, the topical treatments, 
people with diabetes to be really vigilant about skin breakdown and skin necrosis. And um, it's something we tend to overlook in these dry Canadian winters, but it, it is a big issue and eczema does tend to flare in these few months that, that are the most severe. So really trying to minimize that um, and then to just be on the lookout. So as exactly as you described, a skin infection that progresses really quickly but also that can be very, very painful. And sometimes the pain is out of proportion to the size of the infection. You might have a little red dot or a few red bumps, but your entire hand is hurting. That could be something, a sign of something more serious like group A strep. Dr. Kakar, thank you so much. Robert, thank you for your really thoughtful questions and also telling us a lot about your own situation. I think a lot of people can can relate to that and what important information about what symptoms to pay attention to. Um, because we do do that, don't we, Dr. Kakar? We, we look at our, our skin or we look at something that doesn't feel good. And if it doesn't appear to be quite serious, we can sometimes um, negate how, how serious it is before we ever reach out for that help. Absolutely. And I think adults do that more than they do for their kids. But I think, again, pain out of proportion to sort of the size or the look of the infection and things that are spreading quickly, even in adults, please don't hesitate to consult. We're going to go now to Jack, Jack Slatnik. Hello, Jack. Yes. Hi there. You're joining us from Nordic, Alberta, and I'm wondering what your question is for Dr. Kakar. Oh, hi. Yeah. Um, hi, Dr. Kakar. Um, I, I, I'm just wondering, and I <clears throat> maybe I missed, missed this part because I was driving when the the um, the talk started, but what what's the do we know what's the reason for that increase in the number of infections? I was just thinking because uh, from what I think, it's usually either the the bacteria mutates and become more aggressive or invasive, or the second reason might be that we as as humans we do something wrong and. This is, that's why the, the bacteria attacks our bodies more. So uh, I don't that's know. A, Jack, that's an know? excellent question um, about, about where and where this is coming from and how we, if at all, we are contributing to it. Um, Dr. Kakar, how would you answer that? Well, these are these are terrific questions and it really shows how well people are understanding bacteria and viruses now. And um, we're still trying to understand it. And I think in infectious diseases, sometimes it takes a year or two after the outbreak for us to really pinpoint the factors. But what we're looking at is, I think, three different things. Um, the first is that this started last year. So this started really post-COVID when all of our uh, infection control barriers went down and people went back down to normal life. And the first trigger was just that viral surge we had last fall because these invasive infections and these secondary infections tend to occur after a viral infection. So it really began last year. And one of the things is that has happened is that we just have not brought it under control. So usually we have a, a peak and then in the spring, summer months, it decreases, but it really stayed fairly constant this entire summer. So our thinking is that it's just, we haven't uh, stopped the interperson transmission. Um, so that's one of the, the, the two biggest factors. The other factors, we're looking at the bacteria itself. And some strains produce more toxin or a number of toxigenic. So anytime we have um, an invasive strain, it is being sent to the lab for typing, but those results take many weeks. So we don't have results on this year's strain yet. It could well be that this year's strain is particularly more uh, toxigenic, but I don't have that data yet. Um, and then if I can say a fourth thing, which again, we have no data to say if this contributes to it, but some people do tend to stop antibiotics before um, they're, they're prescribed to. So 
For example, for group A strep, if you have the infection, it's a good 10 days of antibiotics, but some people will stop it as soon as they're feeling better. And what that means is that you might be feeling better, there might be less bacteria, but you might have not gotten rid of that carrier state and therefore can really transmit it back to somebody else. So if I can give any um, a plug is to just finish the course of antibiotics that you're prescribed to minimize the risk that you become a carrier and transmit that to someone else. Dr. Kakar, you've given us such good information. We have only about a minute left. And I just want to ask you, when a lot of people, a lot of people, when they hear about a virus or a bacterial infection spreading, it triggers all that thinking about the COVID-19 pandemic. How contagious is strep A in comparison to COVID? Great question. Not nearly as contagious as COVID, especially in open spaces and workspaces and public transport, those kind of things. It's really intrafamilial, close contact schools and daycares, but really children of a very young age who aren't able to control their secretions. So I do want to reassure people that uh, people are going about having their normal lives. They're not going to catch group A strap just by being out and about. It's really through close contact. And there are lots of precautionary measures. And I think just going back to the basis, basics, you know, hand washing, um, if you're going to be sick, if you are sick, to wear mm-hmm. a mask to limit your contacts, those things can reduce the spread. So I don't want people fearing that the this group A strap is going to be like another COVID. It's not. It's something we know how to deal with, but just to take basic precautions. Dr. Fatima Kakar, thank you so much. You've been so informative today. Oh, I'm very glad. And that's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You have been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from January 21st, 2024. If you want to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped out this week. Our screeners are Chuck Mulgat, Hannah Abrahamsi, and Katrina McGaughy. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, and Josh Raxa. Technical production and editing, Will Yar. Program assistant, Mackenzie Ribello. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner and Ruxar Ali. Our digital producer is Sunisha Yolich. Our senior producer is Steve Howard. I'm Saroja Coelho in Toronto. The next edition of Checkup the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.